0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Over these last several weeks, we've been looking at the the most famous sermon ever preached, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And throughout these weeks, I've made the point over and over That as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we must understand that Jesus is not giving us rules to follow in order to become Christians. Rather, Jesus is giving this teaching to those who are already Christians. They are already his disciples. They've already put their faith in him. They've already repented. They're following him. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not how to become a disciple, but how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The power to live this way is not in us. It's in Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, he begins to change us from the inside out. In our nine o'clock service today, we celebrated the baptism of Celia and Dexter Williams. And I told them this morning that baptism is a symbol of the new life that we have when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You could say that the Sermon on the Mount is part of Jesus' teaching on how to live out our baptismal identity, the new life that he gives us. As you get deeper into the sermon, Jesus gets more personal. It gets more challenging. It hits closer to home. And today is one of those days as Jesus addresses the issue of anger. Anyone here been angry lately? (laughs) Hopefully you weren't angry this morning coming into church and you found a parking spot and Everything went smoothly. In this passage, Jesus draws a connection between anger in the heart. And the act of murder. Because it's the seed of anger in the heart that can grow into a murderous rage. I want you to hear these These words, these are chilling words written in a journal by a very angry teenage boy. He wrote this, and this is edited for our ears today. Before I leave this worthless place, I will kill whoever I deem unfit for life. If you ticked me off in the past, you will die if I see you. You might have been able to tick off others and get away with it, but not me. I don't forget people who wronged me. That was written by one of the Columbine killers. One of the boys who murdered 12 other students and a teacher. I don't forget people who wronged me. This was a heart filled with vengeance. Unforgiveness and anger. And it led to those terrible murders. Jesus makes a pronouncement here in this passage. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is making a great claim to authority here to interpret the law of God. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. One of the points of the story of the transfiguration of Jesus as his divine glory is revealed on the holy mountain. One of the points of that story is that we ought to listen to him because he is the divine son of God. And and God the father makes that declaration about his son as Jesus's glory is revealed. He says to the disciples, listen to Him. Listen to my divine son. In this teaching and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just concerned with the outward acts. He's concerned with the heart. And this is one of the ways that Jesus's righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees put a great premium on outward religious appearance but God sees the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, the scripture says, but God sees what's going on inside of us, in the heart. And Jesus is teaching here that it's not just the outward act that God judges, He judges the heart. And a heart that's filled with anger is liable to the judgment of God. Is all anger sinful? Well, there is such a thing as righteous anger, righteous indignation. I think Jesus demonstrated that when he went into the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers and drove them out with a whip. I think he was displaying righteous indignation. Not all anger is sinful. In fact, Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 26. Be angry, but do not Sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let that anger grow and fester in your heart. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. Anger is a natural emotion, but we can't let it grow and fester in our heart. And in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is warning against a kind of anger that tears people down. Down, And as a result of tearing people down, it tears communities down. And that's why, and again, this gets really practical and maybe really personal for some of us. Jesus warns against insulting people by calling them derogatory names. Because that kind of name calling is not only a manifestation of anger in the heart, tearing somebody down. It stirs up more anger and it leads to division. And so look at what he says in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, this word translated here insult in Greek is raka, which it can be translated as fool or empty headed. Um, It has been translated or paraphrased in various ways to kind of capture what Jesus is perhaps saying here, but that. Term raka has been paraphrased as blockhead, stupid, nitwit, bonehead. You get the point. It's, it's insulting somebody's intelligence. And Jesus is saying that whoever insults somebody in this way will be liable to the council. You have to remember this is first century Juda- Judaism, this is the Mid East. This is an honor, shame culture to insult somebody publicly like that was a great insult. You're trying to destroy the reputation. And Jesus says that somebody who does this this way will be liable to the council. Some people believe this is the the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the supreme court of the Jewish law in those days. Other people think that Jesus is referring here to the heavenly council, to the judgment of God. But the point is to insult somebody like this, Jesus says, does deserve judgment. And then he gives another example. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the Greek word translated fool is moros. That's the Greek word. We probably get our word moron from this Greek word. But in the Bible, a fool is is a godless person. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the fool is a godless person and the fool is somebody who lives as if God doesn't exist. They live a morally reckless life because they don't believe that God exists or they don't act as if God exists. So to call somebody a fool in the biblical context is to make a judgment about their relationship with God and their character. And so one commentator made this distinction to call somebody Raka insults their head, to call somebody Moros insults their heart, insults their character. So let's just step back and pause for a minute. And I wonder if this hits close to home for any of us here this morning. Many people in our culture today find it acceptable to curse somebody out if that person has ticked them off for whatever reason. Many people find it completely acceptable to insult somebody's intelligence or character if they don't like them. And we hear this all around us. It's on TV. It's on the radio. It's in our workplaces. It's at our schools. It's especially on... Social media. That person is a blanking idiot. You should have heard me tell that person off after what they did to me. It is everywhere. And in a culture like that, as Christians, we can begin to think, well, we have this right too. And it can desensitize us to the teaching of Jesus here. It's everywhere. There was a story a few years ago about a parrot who escaped his owner's house. This happened in London. And uh, this parrot flew up into a neighbor's tree, and the owner could not get the parrot back. And so she called the fire department, or in the article it said the fire brigade. That's the right way to say it. Checking with my, our, our, our English friend over here. The fire brigade came out, and the owner said, you know, as you go after this parrot, okay, get your, you know, the ladder's up there, you got a picture of this, the parrot's up in the tree. And she said, now, um, to relax this parrot, you need to tell the parrot, I love you. Because I say to the parrot often, I love you, and, and it just sort of warms up the parrot. And so the, fire, the fireman goes up the ladder, and he gets close to the parrot, and he says, I love you. And the parrot squawks back, blank off. Well, he tries it again. I love you. Wake off. And, and obviously the owner was greatly embarrassed at this, and they were not able to capture the parrot. The parrot eventually came back on its own to the house. But the owner then filmed this parrot saying to the fire department, thank you, and posted it on Twitter. The article was called The Potty Mouth Parrot. <laughs> it's so common today that even the parrots have picked it up. And because it's so common, we might think "Ah, it's just not a big deal. But again, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our teacher, not the culture. He is the son of God. Listen to him. Jesus is teaching here that insulting another person in a derogatory way is an expression of anger in the heart. It reveals a murderous attitude an attempt to destroy that person with our words. But then Jesus teaches us a positive way to deal with our anger and the division that can happen as a result of it. So here is the positive teaching. You see, Jesus wants to get at the intent of God's law, and the intent of God's law is not negative, it's positive. As one commentator said, fulfilling the law's command, do not murder, is not accomplished simply by avoiding legal homicide. Jesus reveals that the intent of the law is to nurture relationships. And the intent of the law is facilitated by the practice of reconciliation. And that's what Jesus teaches here towards the end of this passage. One of the practices of the church, one of the ways that we live out the new identity, our baptismal identity as Christians, is this practice of reconciliation. Jesus says this in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, now you have to stop and picture that these disciples, most of them, most of them I'm sure coming from, well, his disciples were from Galilee. They would have had to come a long way to go. Where do they offer their offering? Where was the altar? It was in Jerusalem. So they had to go quite some way to get to Jerusalem to get to the temple to make their offering to God. And Jesus says that if you are at you finally arrive in Jerusalem, you're at the temple, you're you're getting ready to offer your gift. Maybe they've been waiting in a long line. Don't you love waiting in a long line and then you have to get out of the line? Jesus says. Here you are, you're, you're at the temple, you've arrived. You're getting ready to make your offering. And then you remember that your brother has something against you. There's a division there. Leave your gift and go back and first be reconciled with your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. You see what Jesus is teaching here? How important reconciliation is in the community of disciples. It takes priority over worship. And this is something that Jesus wants us to practice beyond the community of disciples. He gives the example of settling matters with an adversary before you go into court, before you go before the judge and you've got somebody who has something against you and it's bad enough to drag you into court. In that case, the adversary is probably not a disciple of Jesus, yet the disciple is to settle this with that person before they go into court, if possible. Now, we live in the real world, and we know that reconciliation is not always possible. But at least we have to make the attempt. At least our conscience needs to be clear before the Lord. This is one of the ways that disciples of Jesus Christ are light and salt in the world. We talked about that last week. That is who we are called to be. That is what Jesus calls us, light and salt in a dark and decaying world. And the practice of reconciliation is one of the ways we do that. Simple question. Is there someone among the family of God with whom you need to be reconciled? Is there somebody in your family That you need to reconcile with. What a great witness to a watching world, to your family, to be a reconciler and to engage in this process of reconciliation. Reconciliation has two main ingredients. First, there is the confession of wrongdoing, the confession of sin. And then there is forgiveness. Those are the two ingredients. And usually when there's division in a relationship, both parties need to do both things. <laughs> usually it's complex like that and people have hurt each other and there needs to be confession and forgiveness on both sides. But those are the ingredients. I'm sorry. I forgive you. And again, sometimes this takes a process. Those are the ingredients. The motivation is love. The power to do it is the power of the Holy Spirit. Last year, I read an article in a national magazine that made the case that Americans are angrier than ever. I wonder if you believe that. I don't know how you could prove such a thing or gauge it, but it seems to me that that might be the case. Angrier than ever. And it said that our anger today is often directed towards people we don't really even know. And that's what can make it so dangerous. Because if the target of your anger is somebody you don't really know and don't have a relationship with, then it's easy to dehumanize that person and to demonize them. And the article made this statement, which I wrote down. Because I find it very chilling. He said that our anger today seeks not merely to be heard, but to hurt. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we can show the world a better way. We're called to show the world a better way. A way of life in the kingdom of God. Instead of seeking to insult the person who has hurt us, we seek reconciliation instead of acting out of vengeance and anger, which tears down by the grace of God, we can act out of a spirit of love, which builds up. That is our call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. I'll close with this in his book, the disciple um, the cost of discipleship, where he talks about the sermon on the Mount. And on this section, he's dealing with anger and bearing insults. And Bonhoeffer writes this God's only begotten Son bore shame and insults for the Father's glory. To bear shame and insults is a way which brings humiliation, personal humiliation. But it is a way to Him, our crucified brother. And therefore, because it's the way of Christ, it's the way of abundant grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. A good sermon for us to, a good word for us to reflect upon and to think about our own practices and behaviors. As we think about the teaching of Christ here. It exposes our hearts. A good response is one of repentance. Perhaps for many of us. And Lord, we do pray also that you would give us the grace and the strength to live more like you've called us to live as citizens of your kingdom, bearing something of your goodness into this fallen world. Like the Apostle Paul, we say we have not obtained perfection, but we want to, by your grace, press on. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our complete righteousness And we thank you for the work of your spirit that helps us to live more like you. And we pray that you would help us to do so in these areas of anger and the need to reconcile. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.